No matter how hard we try, we thank you for uh, that kind of love that you have for us. We thank you that you took our cross, you bore our sin, you bore our shame, you bore our pain, you bore our burdens. And Lord, not just us in this room, every child that you have called. It's a love that none of us can imagine, but we thank God, thank you God, that your love is so much better, so much different than our fickle human love. Father, fill this place today with your presence. Give Joe conviction and courage to speak boldly. Turn our hearts, turn our eyes towards you and the cost that one paid for all. In the name of your son, amen. You may be seated. We have a lot to cover today, so... I'm just going to get right to it. My name is Joe Davis. I'm the pastor here. We're continuing this series on surviving in Egypt. This is week 17, just a few left. And and for those of you that haven't been here uh, and those of you that have, it's a repeat. Egypt is simply a metaphor for the world, surviving in the world. And we're taking the life of Joseph and we're learning lessons from that to learn how to survive in Egypt, in the world. Um, This week, the title is Egypt is Only Half the Problem. So, we have been talking for weeks about how Egypt is filled with depravity and selfishness. And frankly, everything you can think of, everything you can imagine that is designed to divert our eyes and hearts away from God. That's what Egypt is really good at. Egypt is not in the business of, hey, you should follow Jesus. (laughs) Egypt is in the business of, hey, follow us, follow me. It's so easy, though, for us as Christians, people who are trying to follow Christ, it is very easy and very convenient for us to be very critical of Egypt. It helps distract us from our own depravity, frankly, but Egypt really is only half the problem that we face. The other half that makes Egypt so difficult is our own darkness, of which most of which we live in denial about, frankly. There's the depravity that we don't mind admitting to. I call that the nobody's perfect depravity. Oh, yeah, you lie, so do I. Yeah, we all lie. Oh, yeah, that's just me. I cuss on 41. That's just who I am. It's silly me. You know, those are the types of things that we're willing to admit about our depravity, right? That, that we see everybody else do, and it's, it almost becomes like our shtick, you know? Yes, they are sin, but we don't mind admitting them even owning them because it's normal type of sin, acceptable in Egypt. But then there are the depths of our depravity that few, if any, in our life really know about. Parts that we keep hidden until we are forced to do otherwise. Things that if our family or our friends knew would be highly embarrassing, costly, and in some cases quite devastating. And what we do, if, tell me if you can relate to this, we shroud these secret, deep, dark, depravity corners of our life. We shroud them in religion, accomplishments, maybe even service. We shroud them in social media posts that look like everything is nice. 
There are any number of ways that we have learned to distract ourselves from our depravity. But one way or another, it must be dealt with if we are truly going to survive Egypt. We have a long passage today, so let me just get right to it. Chapter 42, 9 through 25. You remember last week, Joseph and his brothers have come face to face for the first time in two and a half decades. And Joseph remembered the dreams he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. He accuses his brothers of being spies. And they said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. <laughs> Sorry, commentary. <clears throat> your servants have never been spies. And he said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, no, we are your servants. We are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. They're talking about Joseph, and they don't know who Joseph is, remember. One is no more. He's dead. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said, you are spies. He's being a little passive aggressive here. <laughs> by this you shall be tested by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. Oh, yeah, you save a little brother? I'm going to keep the rest of you in jail. One of you go get him. And he put them all together in custody for three days. Doesn't let anybody leave. They're all together now for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, tell you what, I've changed my mind. Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest of you go. So instead of having just one, he says, I'll send you all but one. And carry grain for the famine to your house, so you can take what you need to eat, and bring your youngest brother back to me. So your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they, they did so. And they said to one another, as they're getting ready to leave, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? Do you remember that? Reuben, self-righteous Reuben. I told you guys we shouldn't have sold him into slavery. Good old Reuben. But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They've determined that the reason they're going through this with this Egyptian ruler is because of what they did to Joseph. They have no idea. They're talking to Joseph. They did not know that Joseph, this is, this, is, this is awesome. This is something that I would do. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. He's talking Egyptian to them the whole time. And interpreters changing it to Hebrew. Then he turned away from them and wept. When he heard what they said, he turned away in tears, Joseph does. And then he turned back to them and spoke. And he took Simeon from them, bound him before their eyes. He puts him in chains. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. So let's talk about the history. I want to talk about the shame they're facing in Egypt, these brothers. For years, they, uh, the brothers, they've hidden what they did to Joseph. <clears throat> they lied about it to their father, probably to Joseph's mother. And their conscience has been eating away at them for 25 years. They have hidden this sin. They were never, in fact, they were never going to deal with what happened 
until someone or something forced them to do so. They were fine with just denying it. And so Joseph enters the picture. Joseph's struggling, right? So he starts with a false accusation. He knows they're not spies, but he's a little passive-aggressive here. I think this passive-aggressive behavior by Joseph shows that he kind of really wants reconciliation because, you know, it was completely within his power just to put him to death. Hey, guys, you know who I am? I'm your brother Joseph. The one you said is no more? Oh, I am more. I'm in charge of this whole thing, dog. You're dead. But he doesn't do that. And I think, and I'm, I'm kind of making some assumptions here, but I think him dealing harshly with them is almost a defense mechanism. Because he feels he has to be cautious, and this is a legitimate response to what's happening here. The guys who betrayed him, his brothers, 25 years ago, some of the deepest betrayal possible, are right before him. He knows they're lying. And he accuses them of being spies, Sent out to scout any weaknesses. That's what the nakedness of the land means. Sent out any, see any weaknesses in Egypt. And certainly this type of charge would make sense considering it probably had been happening at this point quite a lot since Egypt now controls the world food supply. It would make them an appealing target for other countries for sure. Hey, listen, I want you to go and spy out Egypt. What's going on? See if we can steal some of this grain because we're struggling in this famine. Certainly these brothers were scoundrels, right? We know that. I wonder what Joseph thought when they said, hey, listen, we're not spies, we're honest men. I wonder if like, because it had been me, they would have seen me roll my eyes. Oh, God. And I would have given away, you know, but Joseph doesn't roll his eyes. He's stoic. Ironically, this accusation of being spies isn't nearly as treacherous as what it was they actually did to Joseph. I think I would rather be a spy for my country than to sell out my sister. But they continue to cling to a lie. They're still not knowing who this Egyptian ruler is. The brothers use this sort of half-truth to defend themselves against these false accusations of being a spy. And they rightfully state that they have 12 brothers. At least that's good. And, but one is no more. And the youngest is at home. But they hide their true role in Joseph's fate. Listen, we're 12 brothers, but we sold one into slavery, so he's not with us anymore. And we feel bad about that. But that's, no, that's not what they say. One is dead. Imagine what Joseph is feeling when he hears his brother make a reference to him being dead. And then self-righteous Reuben, you know, he perpetuates the lie that Joseph was dead for nearly 25 years. He never does anything about it. All this time, Reuben, who says, you know, I told you guys not to do that. He knew all along what had happened. He never told his dad. He never told Joseph's mom. He never told anyone. But I imagine over 25 years, it's not the first time he said, I told you guys we shouldn't have done it. I told you, I told you, I told you. But he was perfectly within his power and having all the information to set things right. And he doesn't do it. So then they spend three days in jail. I think this is where Joseph is really confused as to what to do with these guys. Remember, he didn't plan this. It just happened to him. No doubt there is anger. But he doesn't act on it entirely. 
And we can only speculate to all the scenarios that he played out in his head. I could kill him. I could send him back with a scout and I could have him bring back Jacob so I could tell my dad what happened. I could send one like I just said, no, I don't want to send one. I want to send all but one. I'm sure he's like for three days there in jail. He's trying to think, what do I do with this? How do I handle this situation? First, he keeps wants to keep all 10 in jail and to send Benjamin. After three days, he decides to take them all out and sends all but one. This whole time, he is speaking Egyptian to them. That's <laughs> just like it's amazing. Using an interpreter that translates into Hebrew for his brothers. I mean, it's just fascinating to me. He does this to maintain this strategic advantage in the whole dysfunctional relationship. He can hear what they are saying. It's strange, right? But he's hiding from them, but he has all the power. He doesn't need to hide his identity, but he does. Why? He could have said, look, I'm your brother. Go to jail for three days while I figure out what to do with you. It's just strange. Is he being unemotionally shrewd? Not likely. In my opinion, he's human, just like us. There has to be intense emotion involved in every decision he's making. He must be thinking back to that day he was thrown in the pit and sold into slavery, reliving the emotional pain and fear. I think he's processing, he's grinding, he's thinking, he's mulling it over, he's obsessing, he's trying to figure out what do I do with these scoundrels, my brothers. But then finally, there is a glimpse, a hint, a shimmer of remorse. Suddenly they start talking in front of Joseph about what they did to Joseph. And they assume this is justice catching up with them. They say, as a matter of fact, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, the one we said is no more. And that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why we are in this predicament in front of this pagan Egyptian ruler who could very possibly put us to death for being spies. It is a tacit acknowledgement Get this now, see if you can catch this. It is a tacit acknowledgement that God is sovereign in this situation, in this moment. And they're saying God is punishing us for what we did two and a half decades ago, almost a lifetime ago. God has finally brought it back. We are in trouble for what we did to Joseph. They're saying all this. And they think all of this is a result of their treachery on their brother. And it's just fascinating, right? They don't know it's Joseph but they do know it's God behind their current situation. Now, they misunderstand what God is doing. They think it's punishment. And I think, we talked about this last week, I think Joseph knows the same thing. Wow, God has brought my brothers back. I did not plan this. I can't imagine the emotion welling up within him and the fear that's welling up in them. That's the history. Pretty cool story, right? Let's talk about the spiritual, the theology. What about God? What does he do? I want to talk about grace for the brothers. Yes, that's right, grace. How do you think their devotional and prayer life of Joseph's brothers has been for the last 25 years? Think you've had a good time walking with Jesus? I bet you they haven't been to church in decades. 
Not even Easter. Of course, there wasn't an Easter yet, but you get what I mean, right? <laughs> Could it be, see if you can connect with me here, is it possible that this whole thing, this whole part of the story is the grace of God? Giving these brothers a chance to escape the prison of guilt and shame and remorse and hiding their depravity that they have been in for all these years? Could it be that this is what the enemy meant for bad that God has turned around and using for good? Because the enemy wanted to use this to destroy Joseph and to kill the family in the famine. That's what the enemy wanted to do. Without the famine and this dramatic scene between Joseph and his brothers, they would have never confessed their sin. Without this moment, they never would have been reconciled to Joseph and they most likely would have not have survived the famine. Jacob, Benjamin, Judah, who was the, the line of Jesus, and all these guys would have been dead. I'm going to quote it from a guy uh, I like. His name is John Calvin. He says, God, in order to lead the sons of Jacob to repentance, impelled them as well by the secret instinct of his spirit as by harsh circumstances to be sensible of that sin which had been so long, which had been too long concealed. What Calvin is saying here is God has brought this horrible situation, this embarrassing moment, this difficult time for one reason. He wants to bring Jacob sons to their senses about what they are and who they really are. I have an interesting story to give you the irony and show you some contrast about what this is. I want to talk about two other brothers. To understand how God works here and why, I want to look at the story of Cain and Abel. Remember, Cain was Abel's brother, and he was angry and jealous of Abel because God favored Abel's sacrifice and God rejected Cain's. And, and Cain says, that's not fair. <clears throat> I hate my brother. He's God's favorite. And he's angry. He's mad. And God says to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the, at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Listen, Cain, it's okay. Just change course a little bit. I'm, I'm working with you here. If you don't, you got big problems. But I want you to solve this issue. Let me put this verse up for you in context. This is what 1 John says. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother... That's what Cain did, and also Joseph's brothers hated him, remember? He who says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. When God revealed Cain's sin, God's desire was for Cain to be reconciled with his brother and with God himself. In revealing this sin, God is not saying, Cain, I caught you, and now it's punishment time, baby. No, he wants to work with Cain. He wants to give him a chance to repent. God's giving Cain a chance, and now he also gives Joseph's brothers a chance. This shows that God's main desire in dealing with us is not to be this guy on the throne ready to zap you. No, what God wants first is reconciliation. 
Now later, here's what we learn about Cain. He doesn't confess. He doesn't repent. As a matter of fact, he gets even more angry and kills his brother Abel. But Joseph's brothers will learn next week, it works. See the irony? Cain stayed angry and hateful toward his brother. But Joseph's brothers will learn next week, become broken. And the reconciliation process has begun. So I want to talk about this idea of punishment or grace. Often when we see secret sins revealed or consequences come because of those dark crevices of depravity in our life, people often think of it as punishment. Oh, God's going to get me now. Wrong. When God forces us to come face to face with our sin and our depravity while we are living in Egypt, it is not punishment. It is, in fact, grace. Because let me tell you what the scripture teaches us is that God's true punishment for sin is not consequences. It's far worse than embarrassment or discomfort. Here's what Romans says, the price for sin, the real punishment for sin, the wages for sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So you see, the moment that we, the moment that you are forced to deal with your depravity in Egypt, here in this world, it is actually an act of love, not judgment. That precious moment of enlightenment to our depravity is more glorious than any other good news you can imagine that Egypt has to offer. It's better than a new job, better than a new relationship, better than anything like that. It's the moment a child of God truly begins to experience the love of the Father, far more than some earthly blessing. Matter of fact, Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be wary of his correction or reproof. For the Lord loves, for the Lord corrects whom he loves, even as the father, the son in whom he delights. When we are forced to confront our depravity, in reality, it is God showing us his true character, wanting redemption and reconciliation with us. That's what it was for them. It's God showing his love, his unconditional love for Joseph's wretched brothers. Isn't that interesting? I mean, we think about consequences as punishment. It's not. It's God saying, listen, I'm giving you a chance to course correct here. Because the eternal consequences are overwhelming. Let's look at the personal side about this. What about us? I want to talk about under uncovering our depravity. Here was the social media campaign this week. It's frightening when hidden sins are uncovered, but sometimes it's necessary. I didn't get as many likes this week on that one. I don't know why. <laughs> the moment circumstances bring us face to face with our embarrassing reality, it's never gonna be fun. Hey, what are you doing this week? Oh, I got on my schedule to deal with the deepest, darkest corners of my depravity. It's going to be great. <laughs> Want to join me? We'll go to Bush Gardens. We'll do it on a roller coaster. How's that? <clears throat> but it happens to all of us. 
at least those who God loves. Coming to grips with the depths of your depravity is a sobering thing, but we desperately need to do it. Again, like last week, church, I hate to tell you, we must go there. I told you the next few weeks are going to be pretty intense as we wind up this series. But let me tell you, it is better to deal with your depravity in Egypt than in eternity. You can't hide forever. Here, I want you to understand this. If we could, if we say, First John says this in chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Here's what I can tell you. There is not a chance that you can get through Egypt unsoiled, no matter how shiny you look. It is hopeless, it is delusional, it is spiritually arrogant and totally foolishly blind of you to think you can traverse Egypt and not have depravity creep in. All of us at one time are Cain or the evil brothers and sisters. All of us. Just because your sin is in the past, out of thought, out of mind, I promise you it is still there, lying at the door. Sin is lying at the door, he told Cain. The door of your heart and your soul. And if God is going to save you, there must be moments by God's grace and love that you are forced to deal with your deepest depravity. We must be willing to deal with our own contributions to what has made Egypt so hard. Those things we have denied, kept well managed and manicured and hidden for years, when those things are revealed, it is not going to be pleasant at first, but I can tell you there is joy in confession. Once you are blessed by God's grace to be in one of those moments of clarity, there is a joy and peace that comes from admitting it. We are doing this right now because of what we did to Joseph. That moment we receive redemption from God and the Egypt of our own making begins to lose its grip on our hearts and souls. All right, you're not going to like this prayer. <laughs> Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there's any tiny sins that I can confess today in public that make me look good. <laughs> no, that's not what it says. It says, see if there be any grievous way in me. Why? So you can lead me in the way everlasting. Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there's anything grievous in me, anything at all, all the darkness, all the corners, all the depths, all the things that I've hidden, please reveal them to me. Because let me tell you, church, for us 
to survive in Egypt or perhaps maybe even thrive here, we must live in the light about our hidden sinfulness. No vacation, no uh, meditation, no self-medication, no new relationship, no new purchase, no anything that Egypt has will heal you. The only way to start a new pattern of reconciliation and healing is to be exposed to our cancer of depravity. Wouldn't it be better to deal with it while in Egypt rather than in eternity? Maybe it's best if you deal with it today, now. Are you ready to make Psalm 139 your prayer? Or is it going to take a famine to bring you to that place? And then, once God graciously answers your prayer from Psalm 139 and he reveals these things, here comes the greatest part of living in Egypt. It's that moment you cry out, Heavenly Dad, my sin is ever before me. Cleanse me. Forgive me through the cross. Church, perhaps this moment, right now, this very second, God is saying, hey, I have a gift for you. It's time you understood just how much you need grace. How bad off you are without me intervening. If you decide that this week is the week you want to pray this prayer, then I'm going to leave you with another prayer to use that I use all the time. I want you to write this passage down or just take a picture of it with your phone. Don't use the flash. Come on, give me a break. It's Psalm 51, verses 1 through 10. I'm just going to read it for you. Instead of closing with a prayer, I'm just going to read it. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my depravity. For I know my transgressions and my sin is very evident to me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And you are justified in your words and you're blameless if you judge me. Behold, I was born in iniquity, and in sin my mother gave birth to me. But you delight to have truth in the most inward part of my being. And you teach me wisdom in that secret place. That's what we're talking about. Purge me with blood, and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be made whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness that the bones of pride that you have crushed can now rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew an upright, steadfast spirit 
within me.